Man, the Crucial Conversations is getting better and better to the fact that we even have guests on the ads now. Yes, we do. And we are super excited. You guys have already heard about the Jesus Rally from last week. Well, we actually have the co-founder. We have the co-founder on the phone with us right now. Patricia, you still with us? I am. Tell our listeners a little bit about what we got going on for the Jesus Rally. Okay, the Jesus Rally uh, was laid on my heart uh, when the Lord... uh, led me to find uh, to start G714 the movement which is based on 2nd Chronicles 714 and we are so excited that God has just sent us people to get on board we are having um, myself and three other people that will be speaking that night we have uh, some amazing talent for praise and worship uh, it's just going to be a beautiful evening where we're inviting the Holy Spirit just to come and have his way and we're praying that souls will be saved and that the church will be revived. What do you say to the people that say, well, the coronavirus is still going on. I don't want to be cooped up in some building with all these people that don't know they're sick. Well, I say, well, you're in luck. Come on out because this is an outdoor activity. It's on a 25-acre retreat. It is, there is plenty of room for social distancing. Um, and it's just going to be a great evening of fellowship where you don't really have to be real close to anybody if you don't want to be. As long as you stay close to Jesus, right? That's amen, brother. Amen. <laughs> so how can they find out more about this event? Do you have a Facebook page or anything our listeners could go see? Um, I do. Well, I, I have a Facebook page, which is Patricia C. Merrill, Chuck Merrill. Um, but it's open to the public, and you can find the link from that page or um, I can share it to your page, Tony, so that you can share it also. Absolutely. So, guys, you don't want to miss this event. It's October the 3rd, correct? That's right. Mm-hmm. And, and it starts at 4 o'clock in Gates, Tennessee. Yes, and that is actually on the outskirt, uh, outskirts of Gates, and it's really not too far from anywhere. <laughs> gotcha. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And, guys, we do impress you guys to try to come out and visit with us we're going to be there we're going to enjoy a nice um, evening of worship we pray for beautiful weather but come out introduce yourself we would love to see you guys and we have another new sponsor that you guys heard about last week as well rowan ray brian tell us about rowan ray ladies i know finding modest fashion wait wait, how do you know uh because i'm married (laughs) okay and i I see the way my wife struggles (laughs) ladies i know it's hard to find modest fashion and it can be challenging so we found a new sponsor that offers just that. Row and Ray Boutique is committed to offering you trendy, modest, and high-quality pieces to complement your style and leave you feeling beautiful and confident. Use the code CC20 for free shipping on your purchases. Their website is linked in our bio, and that is at Row and Ray. That's R-E-A, by the way, for Ray. Rowandrayboutique.com. And we cannot thank them enough for being a sponsor. Um, we love our sponsors. Uh, one that's been with us for a long, long time is Anderson Heat and Air. I think it's pretty much from day one, hasn't it been? Yeah, absolutely. And you know you're hot right now. You're sitting in that house saying, man, I wish this air would kick on. I've got it set on 67 and it's showing 72. Well, our friends at Anderson Heat and Air, they can take care of that. Brian, did he work on your house? Oh, absolutely. How, how did that work for you? Man, I can't even put it into words. It's just spectacular. Awesome. Go to Anderson Heat and Air of NEA. They got a Facebook page, or you can call 870 926 8700. 
tell Nate that we call we sent you. I'll say it like this, because of us. I'll say it like this, Tony. Uh-huh. You ask me what it's like when Nate Anderson comes over. I'm fresher than a Subway sandwich every morning. I, I'm not hey, sweating. No free night. ads over it, here. It's 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 perfect. No free ads over here. Okay, well here I'll retroactively change it by saying Subway's terrible. <laughs> and so so I even, like Subway. I mean, you can eat fresh there, but I mean, I'm not saying you're going to eat good. Call 870-926-8700. You like cold cuts or you like it hot? I love cold cuts. Have you ever had them heated and toasted? Never, and I never would. Yeah, you should. I don't understand why, side note, I don't understand why when I get like a tuna sandwich from there, they ask me if I want it heated. Yeah, I don't eat tuna, so I don't know anything about that, but it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because wouldn't it have to be served cold? Anyway, if you're ready to get cold, go ahead and call Nat Anderson at 870-926-8700. I know you're trying to hold out until it's cool outside, and then you won't have to worry about getting your air fixed. But just go ahead, because the next year is going to come faster than ever. Can you imagine we're already this deep into 2020? I mean, but this year has been absolutely crazy. We've 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 got all kinds of stuff. We've got coronavirus. We got all this other stuff. We've been inside. And, and while you've been inside, you've probably been doing a lot of online shipping. And if you didn't shop at thedriftedrumcompany.com, what is wrong this, with you? Why would you not shop at thedriftedrum.com? And that's exactly what I'm asking. Why would it be through all this? You've been ordering your dog food through Amazon. You've ordered a TV on Walmart. You've done all this other stuff, but you didn't get the No Mess, No Message book. Or the Sweet Apparel. Oh, my gosh. Or the Companion Journal. You haven't used the promo code Cruiser2020? You're, you're, you're sitting at home, and you're bored. And we're trying to save you some money. It's like me saying, hey, you want to order something? Let me go ahead and also give you a free meal because we're saving you that much money. And with the kind of deal you get using the promo code CRUCIAL2020, your husband or wife, they can't be upset with all the online spending you're doing because you're getting it at a discounted price of 20% off. Right. Go to thedriftedrum.com, put in promo code CRUCIAL2020, get 20% off your entire purchase, and get uplifted. Get you some sweet new apparel. Get you that companion journal and get it at a discount. Dr. April Jones, thank you so much for being a sponsor. And finally, last, but certainly not least, Sheila Texter. She wrote a book. It's a book that she's been excited to get let get out. She has a story to tell, and she wants people to know it because she has a story that's going to uplift you. It's going to encourage you. It's going to strengthen you. You can get it on Amazon.com. The name of the book is Life After the Mistake, New Beginnings. Again, that is by Sheila Texter. You can go on there and get that, or you can go to her Facebook page. She'll send you a signed copy. Same price, no extra charge. It might be worth something more someday, Brian. Nice. Because she talks yeah. about some stuff in there that's pretty hardcore. If you've ever lived life and you decided, hey, I'm going to become a Christian, all of a sudden you think things are going to be perfect. Well, hold up. We're going to, we're here to say that's just not true. Sheila Texter is going to dive into some stuff that she has uh, encountered. Personally walked through. And uh, it's real. real she stuff. sent us a, a copy before it came out. It's, it's real. Yeah. And... Uh, we can't thank her enough for being on here, and uh, she's going to be a guest soon. Uh, look forward to having that conversation with her. But like Brian said, it's life after this mistake. You can find it on Amazon.com. Guys, we're about to dive into another crucial conversation. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, guys, this is Brian. And I'm Tony. And you're listening to the Crucial Conversation Podcast. Tony, this is 
an awesome interview already because this is the first interview where I get to do it from the comfort of my own home. And, uh, and I get to do it from the comfort of my steering wheel. That's awesome. So, so you're driving back from Illinois. You've spent some, some time up there today. And we have a guest on that we've, we've uh, been looking forward to for quite some time. Uh, about a year ago, we went up to St. Louis, and we were hoping to get a chance to meet Dr. Robin Johnston then. Um, unfortunately, our schedules didn't line up just right, but finally, we were able to get an opportunity to speak with you, Brother Johnston. And uh, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today, and looking forward to getting some of the insights from you. Um, for, for our listeners who, who don't know your background, tell us a little bit about um, where you're from, uh, what kind of academic pursuits you've done, uh, what your primary areas of study are, and just, just give us a little context with, with who you are. All right. Well, I grew up in New Brunswick, Canada, so my grandmother, my uh, paternal grandmother, came into the church, uh, one truth, in the early 30s, and so I guess I'm the third generation in a small little town uh, close to the border of uh, Maine, a place called Macadam, New Brunswick. So grew up there in church, uh, and when I was 18, uh, came to St. Louis to go to Gateway College of Evangelism, and finished four years of, of study at, at the college. Uh, those days, Gateway had a high school, and I stayed around a couple of years to uh, teach at that high school. In fact, for, for a year, I served as the principal of that high school, so about 20 22 years old or something like that. And then uh, I, I went to British Columbia on the west coast of Canada and, and, and planted a church in, in Victoria, British Columbia. I was there 13 years. And my wife is from St. Louis and has roots in a, in a church here in, in the city. And But the, Tim Dugas was the pastor of that church uh, and he became the president of Gateway College, and he invited me to come back to St. Louis to be the academic dean for the for the college. And so I came back to St. Louis in 1994, and uh, that fall I enrolled in Covenant Theological Seminary, which is here in the St. Louis area. It is a uh, Presbyterian Church in America seminary, uh, conservative evangelical seminary, definitely Trinitarian, most most definitely Calvinist. And uh, I finished a master's degree uh, while I was teaching and administrating at Gateway. So it took me about five years to get through a master's program. And then in 2003, I uh, enrolled in the Ph.D. program at Regent University and uh, completed a, a doctoral degree there in, in renewal studies with the emphasis on the uh, history of global Christianity. So that's kind of the educational background. Um, a lot of years between the time that I graduated from college till I went back to uh, seminary, probably 13 years from. So I, I was already established as a minister. And one of the, you know, one of the challenges I think of being a covenant was that uh, it was a very scholarly community and, and countless by, I think by nature are given to scholarly pursuits, but having been grounded in, in some experience as a oneness Pentecostal minister, um, was able to keep my feet 
firmly planted under me while I was at Covenant. So it sounds to me like you were um, intentional from the very get-go with uh, being a third-generation apostolic. Uh, how did your family take it with you going from um, uh, New Brunswick area down to the United States, then as far away as possible going to British Columbia? How, how did they handle all that? Well, they weren't terribly excited about the whole process. There was a Bible college about 50 miles from where I grew up. It's now called Northeast Christian College. In those days, it was called the United Pentecostal Church Bible Institute, or UPBI, United Pentecostal Bible Institute. Um, yeah, it was. they weren't terribly thrilled with that decision. Um, but uh, I just really feel like that, that I, I needed to broaden my horizons. And New Brunswick... Which is a you know great um, a great heritage there in New Brunswick, a tremendous missions missionary sending province. Well, they, without a doubt, New Brunswick has sent more missionaries per capita than any district in the United Pentecostal Church. In fact, in many ways, New Brunswick is like Louisiana when you take the number of churches and members in ratio to the to the general population. So, but it was definitely yes, have a. We actually have a guy that's in our church that's from New Brunswick, and y'all can have him back if you guys want him. <laughs> Who is that? Oh, um, that? We have Anthony Farrell. That's Dave and Roma Farrell's son from Perth and Yeah, yeah I, I do know. I see that he was in a class or two of mine that I taught at Gateway. Yeah, he's he's actually going to our church now. And when you you say that you got uh, that uh, New Brunswick actually sends out all these different. Uh, um, missionaries and, and people that are starting different churches and stuff like that. Is that something that is intentional by the superintendent there, or, or is that just kind of something that's just kind of happened? No, I, I, well, I mean, I have my my opinion on it. Um, early on, there was a, a, a foreign missions director, actually became the foreign missions director of the United Pentecostal Church. Of those days, when the, when the UPCI was formed, it was actually called foreign missions secretary, but in those days, the secretary and director, if that makes sense, Wynn Stairs. Uh, and he was a phenomenal missions promoter. He lived and breathed missions uh, and was an incredible storyteller. Uh, and I am a firm believer in the power of story. And he just built that into the New Brunswick culture uh, that, that we would, missionaries were heroes. Uh, I grew up, uh, I've often said, you know, we get. Peter and Paul those two great heroes of the New Testament, obviously outside Jesus Christ. And in New Brunswick, you had Bill Drost, sometimes people know Bill Drost at Pentecost, uh, and Werner uh, Larson, who were pioneer missionaries to Columbia, which in my growing up years was the kind of the, the, the most significant um, revival that we had uh, outside the United States and Canada. And those men and their families were heroes to all of us growing up in New Brunswick and celebrated. It's been you know, 30, 40 years since I've been to camp meeting in New Brunswick, but growing up, I can still remember that Thursday was Missions Day, and uh, the Went Stairs was an incredible promoter, and through, through the telling of stories and promotion, he built a missionary culture in New Brunswick. As a believer in stories, I noticed that it, it, some of the things that you've worked on have been telling our story, 
the story of uh, the UPC about oneness apostolic um, Pentecostalism. Uh, but before we get there, before we get too far, just as a teaser of what, where we're heading in this conversation, uh, going back when you talked about how you went to these different uh, seminaries, these different colleges, when you went there, um, you mentioned Calvinism at one point. Um, was there anything in your academic pursuits that shook you as a, a oneness Pentecostal? Was there anything that you that caused you to question your essentials? And the reason why I ask it is because there was always this, uh, seems to be this um, idea that people who go to university come out as liberal, they lose their beliefs, they change. And that's that's whether you want to look at it from a political perspective. The assumption is you're going to go in a a, a conservative and they're going to come out a, a liberal. And the same thing in the in, in religion is they go in as a conservative Christian, they come out and now they're this open-minded and everything. So was there anything in your pursuits that caused you to pause? And, and if so, how did you negotiate that? Well, I, I think as I mentioned earlier, I was a little older. So I was um, probably 37 when I went back to seminary. So uh, and I had pastored a church for 13 years, so I, you know, I wasn't a novice uh, when I when I went. And I and I've often reflected on that. It's a good question. I reflect on what what would have my experience been if I had gone right uh, to seminary out of Bible college. Obviously, you know, I don't have um, any kind of special way of looking at that. And, and there wasn't really anything that really shook me. Uh, that what was apparent to me was this. The professors at, at Covenant. So let me like, let me put this in context. I was teaching at Gateway, uh, usually, you know, maybe three, four classes, semesters, in addition to my administrative uh, roles. So I was, I was, I sometimes say teaching everything I know and a few things I made up. Uh, a, a generalist, you know, taught in, in church history, uh, biblical studies, you know. Uh, pastoral stuff, relationship stuff. I mean, it seemed like hermeneutics, if it was on the if it was on the curriculum, it seemed like I taught it pretty well, besides music. Um, and when I got to Covenant, these guys were, in, in the sense that I, I taught everything I knew and a few things I made up. They were teaching from the very tip of what they knew. They had a, you know, if, if their arm was the Effect of their knowledge, their what they taught in class was the end of one finger, and that was impressive to me that they were. Uh, I recognized that they were experts in their field in a way that I wasn't an expert in my field, uh, because I didn't have the depth of education. I didn't realize it took me a while to realize that when you, when you go on to do PhD work, you just know more and more and more about less and less and less. If that makes sense. As you narrow uh, your focus, then you become more of an expert in a field. It doesn't mean you're, you're smarter than you know, people who don't have a PhD. It just means that you focus a lot of attention on one area of study. So, so that was impressive. The other part was that was impressive to me was these were godly people. They took their Christianity seriously. They um, were kind and gracious. Um, but having you know the fact that I was 38 years old. And deeply rooted in a church, and 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 had um, colleagues at, at Gateway uh, who had navigated similar water, or were in the process of, of navigating that water, and having that community ground 
uh, myself and help me navigate navigate those waters. So when I went on to uh, to region, it, it, you know, it, it's a you know charismatic uh, neo Pentecostal, I guess renewal school is what they would say. It was a much friendlier place, uh, you know, a covenant. And, and maybe at any point you can stop me, but one of the things that was that made it easier at covenant was not only was I the a oneness believer, I was a Pentecostal believer. Not only was I a Pentecostal believer, I was an Arminian, and they were all Calvinists. So uh, I didn't fit any of their boxes. I you know, didn't, didn't hold a Calvinist theology, wasn't a Trinitarian, and it was a Pentecostal. And um, I recognized that, um, well, I could learn a few things from them. We were, we were creatures from a different planet. Uh, just in case our listeners aren't familiar with some of these terms, what do you mean by Arminian and Calvinist? Um, obviously, uh, Calvinist comes from John Calvin, who was a 16th century reformer, who, who basically holds, uh, sometimes it's called TULIP, but I, uh, this really comes after Calvin, but sometimes we boil Calvinism down to TULIP, which five doctrines, total depravity. By that, uh, you mean that people are born in sin, totally depraved, and they can't they can't seek God. Their will is so bound with sin that they can't even look for God because they're, they're born totally depraved. Uh, who looks? See, unlimited. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go brain dead on you in the middle. Unconditional of the election. Uh, unconditional election. Yes. So what I mean by unconditional election is that uh, God chooses. He's sovereign. He chooses who He will be saved. And, who won't be, be saved. In fact, they taught a covenant, what they called superlapsarian, which means before the world ever lapsed, uh, God chose some for election and some for damnation. Uh, so, you know, you're a Christian because he chose you to be a Christian. Uh, limited atonement, so he really only saved for the, he only, he only died for the elect. Irresistible grace. If you have been chosen, you can't resist that grace. And if you have been chosen, obviously you're going to persevere to the end. So you, once you're once saved, always saved. And and really, you know, without going into too much detail, Arminian Jacob Arminius was a Dutch uh, Reformed preacher theologian who really challenged Calvin on those five points I just mentioned, and that's really why the why we use the acronym TULIP because he was Dutch and TULIPs are uh, found, you know, celebrated in Holland and those were his five points of remonstrance that he argued against. And so Arminian believe in free will, that there's a prevenient grace that goes before that unbinds the will. And so I can can accept or reject a free offer of salvation. So... It, it, that's one of those topics that it's um, and there's so many variations in between them. I'm on some Facebook forums and recently we had a discussion over the uh, Tulip Doctrine and and even the Calvinists that were on that call didn't agree when what uh, true Calvinism was. Uh, they actually made one of them made a very weird distinction between um, how they didn't believe in once saved always saved. They believe in once truly saved always saved, and then I'm. I'm just scratching my head because I come from a totally different world. 
of a, of a. I have no idea what that even means, Brian. What? what yeah. What was their argument for that? Yeah, I, I, I don't know really because it didn't make sense to me because we come from the on the Armenian side from a libertarian free will, which means if you want to do something, you can do it. And even on the call, the, the Calvinists didn't agree on what free will was. Some of them said, no, you don't have free will. But then other ones said, you do have free will. The only problem is, is the only choices you have are bad choices. You can make any bad choice you want, but you can't make any good choices on your own. And so to me, it's like you've got free will, but you don't really. Because if you only have one option, you really don't have an opportunity to do anything different than the one option you have. Yeah, and, 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 and really it wasn't difficult for me to reject Calvinism. It's a tight system. Uh, there, there's a book out there, uh, Stan Granson, Roger Olson wrote, called Who Needs Theology? It's just a little book. Uh, and in that book, and they, and they, they put theology on, 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 a, on a continuum from folk theology all the way up into very academic theology. And, and I asked the question, who, who needs it? And I, One of the things they say in the book that I found interesting when I was covenant which there there is good theology that's wrong and bad theology that's right so I mean let me explain what I mean by that Calvinism is a good theology in the sense that it's tight and holds together logically holds together if you, if you accept the logic it's just however wrong and sometimes as one Pentecostals we haven't thought through and created uh a tight theological system, but but what we believe is right, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, on one of those calls, after that guy got done talking, there's actually a guy on there that he um, he he was once UPC. I think he actually now is the bishop of his own apostolic organization. I don't know if you've heard of him. Or not. His name's Jerry Hayes. Um, no. Yeah, he, he's written several books. Like I said, he's, he's no longer UPC. I think he's what's called Apostolic Orthodox now. Um, okay. But he, he was saying that, that he thinks, in his perspective, that, uh, that one, one is Pentecostalism has focused so much time on focusing on our apologetics against a Catholicism kind of a mindset. But he was like, you know, in my perspective, of course, with him, his, his motivation is to kind of bring a lot of Catholicism into uh, the Oneness Pentecostal movement. He even he vocally said that was his goal in, in his ministry. But he was saying that he thinks that a lot of the focus is missed because he says that in his opinion the Reformed theology is much more at odds with what we we believe than Catholicism. And he cited things like uh, John Calvin and Michael Savitas, um, how John Calvin burned Michael Savitas, who believed in a non-Trinitarian uh, concept at the stake because of his renouncing of the Trinity. Um, he pointed out how Reformed theology doesn't have a high view of baptism. Uh, and he started going on and on. And it is a very interesting case. Um, it's a very interesting discussion. It's one that I'm, I'm, I've actually got a couple of books. In fact, one of the books I have downloaded right now is by one of the men that you mentioned, uh, Roger Olson. But... Um, is there anything else you want to add on that, or do you want to start moving moving forward? I got no, I, uh, I got go a ahead. question, bro. So, you, Brian was sending me some uh, studies that he's been doing preparing for this interview, and he sent to me that you wrote a uh, apostolic handbook series on uh, 
Pentecostal theology, correct, bro? Well, I did, I edited that series. I wrote the volume in the series on Acts. Right. So and modern day oneness Pentecostals, yeah. Right. Um, so my question is, um, you know, just since I've been I've been in this movement my whole life, but it seems like every single year, um, it seems like our doctrine gets stretched a little bit, or um, our churches kind of stretch just a little bit and this isn't to throw shame on anybody uh, convictions or anything like that but how do you think we as uh, modern apostolics could improve on uh, kind of how we live today opposed to um, kind of how our original founding fathers um, for lack of a better term kind of founded our doctrine uh, because uh, you, you've got a lot of studies in that what, what, what are some some things that should be untouchable and unmovable in our life that if we're not careful, we're going to move them and um, just kind of get too far from our, from our roots. Well, you know, we are Pentecostal, and uh, part of the challenge, and, and again, I, you asked the question about me going on to school, and uh, we are, we're influenced by other people, and, and um in the broader Pentecostal movement, outside of oneness Pentecostal, talk about Assemblies of God, or particularly, let me just mention the Assemblies of God. So many of their young ministers were trained in evangelical schools that ultimately uh, they're, and you know, this is in conversations I've had with them, they're concerned with drifting away from the Pentecostal roots, and they do theology like an evangelical. So, um, in fact, they'll, they'll build themselves as evangelicals with a difference. In the process of that, they, 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 they almost, they're in the process of being subsumed into the large evangelical community. So I think one Pentecostals have an advantage. Uh, I know I'm not answering the questions right head on, but let me, let me come at it sideways. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think our position on holiness and separation and our position on, on water and spirit new birth uh, prop each other up in a way that um, is healthy for us uh, because um, you know sometimes we we our, our commitment to holiness wavers because we want to be you know, broadly in my opinion there's a there's a desire to be accepted by a broader culture that's never really going to happen as long as we're one that's been apostles are the oneness, understanding of the Godhead, and our insistence on water and spirit baptism as, as, the, as a new birth plan of salvation will always be at odds with the broader evangelical community, broader Christian community. So when people begin to let down on one, it's not long before they let down on the other. Um, so, uh, but, you know, on the, on, to get a little closer to your question, uh, what could we do different? I think we understand a little, a little more. I, I mean, I honor the, the men and the women who come before us, but there's uh, some theological depth, I think, that we've gained over the years uh, as, as we look. But is that depth to our benefit or detriment? I think it can be. Uh, uh, I think it can be to our, our benefit. Let, let, me, let me just give you a for instance. So we believe uh, that speaking in tongues is the evidence of receiving the baptism of the Spirit. 
So, um, and you know, when people ask, well, why tongues? You know, what I learned as a young man was, you know, the best possible explanation was that in James, the you know, tongue is an unruly member, so the last part of our body that submits to God is our tongue. And that's why, you know, perhaps that's why God chose speaking in tongues. Well, you know, that kind of works. And, you know, there's no real biblical link between the two, if you understand. It's looking at a broad scope of scriptures and saying, well, James says this interesting thing about the tongue and we speak in tongues. But Seagraves, Dan Seagraves just uh, released a book, actually just releasing this week, uh, on the Holy Spirit, a uh, commentary on the Holy Spirit. And he points out in this book that something I've never really seen before, haven't really thought about, but in the Old Testament, and particularly in, in the pre-Pentecost New Testament, if you look, I'll use, for example, the um, first chapter of Luke and, um, and what's often called the infancy narratives. When the Spirit comes on Elizabeth, and when the Spirit comes on Mary, and when the Spirit, you know, they're filled with the Spirit, that's the language that's used in, in, in Luke 1 and Zechariah. They all speak prophetically. They, there, there is a, there's, there's, there's a Spirit-empowered speech that happens. And if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll see when people people when the spirit comes on people in the old testament they often speak out prophetically pentecost is different in the sense it's a new era and, and, and i'm not suggesting that what comes before the day of pentecost is absolutely similar to what comes after the day of pentecost it is definitely a change moment but the change is not as radical as we think tongues speaking in tongues is not a far departure from what happened in the Old Testament when the Spirit came on people and they spoke prophetically. I don't know that our, our I've never read that in any of our early writings, but I think Brother Seagraves is on onto something. Is that, is that, you understand what I mean by deepening? I think that's a, I think that's a more logical explanation. Than, yeah, yes, absolutely. The, the, reason, the reason I want to ask kind of what the unmovables and untouchables should be in our lives is because I have a, a family member that uh, used to be a very, well, a prominent figure in our movement. And when I ask you if it was to our benefit or detriment, that question is solely rooted on, uh, on, the, on this person because um, they feel like they've gained so much studies to where they find it, uh, the plan of salvation is not essential. And... Uh, you know, it, it just it kind of blows my mind because I don't understand. And maybe you can give some insight on this. And if some of our listeners are feeling, you know, hey, that's me, maybe you can give some insight on why some Pentecostals or apostolics or broaden the horizon, some some Christians have that experience that's such a real close encounter experience where with you, God, where you feel like you can just reach out and hold his hand and you have this. Uh, this passion and this desire that you leave after this experience, and then you 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 may never feel that experience again. And you're like, well, what was that? Just something that I, I was longing for to where uh, it's something that I, I made up. Is is that something that's real? And um, I, I just don't understand how somebody who's had those experiences can be like, no, 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 no. I changed my mind. Let's go this direction. Can you give some insight on that? Well, I think experience by itself. Is can be fickle, um, but 
and I, and I think it's for me it's interesting when when Charles Parham uh, first uh, kind of teaches well he, he asked the question when what we know kind of the defining Pentecostal birth story uh, Parham is in the latter part of 1900 meets with the students at, at Topeka Bible College Bethel Bible College in Topeka and he asked them what's the biblical is, is there a uniform biblical evidence of people speaking in tongues or biblical sign and, and of course when he comes back just before the turn of the year students say that that they find out that you know that speaking in tongues seems to be the uniform evidence and then you know that before you know on the watch night service of the next year as the next year came in Agnes Osmond speaks in tongues and that's often the birth of the modern Pentecostal movement, but the process that that Parham arrives at that is interesting. He doesn't experience something and then exegete the experience. He finds something in the Bible that experiences what he found in the Bible. So Pentecostals are often accused of, of exegeting, trying to understand what an experience means. And while we are experiential and experiences are obviously incredibly important, we're not only experiential. Or we shouldn't be. We should. Uh, we should. I mean, experience can help us understand the Bible better. But, but we also come at. We're looking at the biblical text and say, why aren't we experiencing what they experienced in the Book of Acts? And if they had it, if it was available to them, why can't it be available to us? So, um, I think that's kind of misunderstood sometimes. But I, I, I don't. As to, as to your specific question, I think that experience alone. Is and we can we can doubt our own experiences. So you have to have you know a deep rooting in the, in the scripture as well as have an experience. Uh, and I think the two of those again support each other. As a teacher in church history, um, where where are we found in church history? There's a again one of those forums that I'm on, on on the internet. There's there's one that's being thrown around quite a bit that when is Pentecostalism didn't begin until 1913. And uh-huh. my, and my question to you is number one, where is that charge brought up? Like why would they say 1913? And what is the evidence of a pre 1913? believers that that believe very similar to us and and if if you can go all the way back to even the book of acts the 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 church fathers and then our history and what did what did the 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 modern uh, 20th century renewal of the apostolic pentecostalism uh, what was their views on things like this um and i'm very interested to see here what the view of of tongues as an initial sign of the infilling of the spirit was uh, amongst our our early church brethren, uh, because I think that the man the man that Tony's referencing, I think I've seen him before, actually uh, quoting Howard Goss, the first superintendent of the UPC, and and showing that he didn't believe what we currently teach. So I'm just curious, what is our history, and and do we have a history to boast in, or is our history in an embarrassment of 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 not being able to prove that we are in any way tied to the historic church. Well, that's a that's a that's an interesting, difficult question. But let me let me let me try to summarize it as as briefly as I can. Uh, obviously, I would say that we're definitely found in the Book of Acts, and that that's 
Acts is, you know, I chose to write the the handbook on Acts, and it's there are eight handbooks in the Apostolic Handbook series, but only one of them is based on a, a single book of the Bible, and that and that's the book of Acts. Uh, so, in, in some ways, the Acts Acts functions as a canon within a canon for us. Uh, so, yeah, I think that we're we're trying to to replicate the, the book of Acts church. And then, you know, there aren't a lot of extant uh, histories. You know, there are some, you know, uh, anti-Nicene church fathers that you can access. And you can see pieces of, of what early Pentecostals believed and what, that seem to line up with what we would believe today. But I would remind you that, that history, history is written by winners. And when a majority um, um, consensus forms, there's a, there's a, an attempt. For, let, let me give you. Let me show you exactly what I mean by that. So, are you familiar with Tertullian, father of the Latin uh, theology, and often called the person who coined the term uh, Trinity? Yes. So, so his opponent in part of his discussion is a guy named Praxius. And he wrote one of the one of the books that we have is uh, against Praxius, and that's when he uh, suggests that that Praxis Praxius was a Patripassian and killed the father, um, uh, and sometimes called um, monarchy monarchical modalism. So, and I'm sorry, I'm I'm throwing big words around and not explaining. Uh, but my point is this. We only know what Paraxius believed because we know what Tertullian said about him. That's, we don't really know what Paraxius believed. And, you know, given your experience on online forums, you know when people misunderstand you and think they're stating what you believe and they they don't. They don't. They don't understand what you believe. We have we have no confidence in knowing what what exactly Paraxius believed. Same would be true of Sibelius. We don't really know what Sibelius believed because none of his works survived. Only the only thing that, that survived is is uh, the what what would be considered orthodox works. So none so, of so none of these men we would even know about if it wasn't for the the detractors that wrote against them. Yes, and then you have to ask yourself the question: Do you think that the detractors wrote fairly about them? So I, you know, there, there, there yeah. is, and like you said, uh, it's easy on those online forums to see how quickly people can misrepresent the other view. Yeah, absolutely. There, there, you know, one of the things that I think is misunderstood is that at Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea, there is a, a, a his name just escapes me. And always, for some reason, I can't ever remember his name. But in in some ways, the the Trinitarians uh, and the Oneness were really on the same side at Nicaea over against the Arians. So, um... Was Arius a Trinitarian himself? No, he he believed... So the the big question in early church history is who is Jesus Christ? So how was he both God and man? And so people err on both sides. Sometimes they think he was uh, docetic, that he just appeared to be a man. He was really God who, who, who... Took on a, a form of man, but not in the in the way the Bible talks about Jesus being manifest in the flesh. So you have that, and then you have 
the other side of that coin is adoptionistic Christology, in which a man uh, is adopted somehow as the son of God, either at his baptism or even at his birth. But he wasn't truly God. And Arians falls in that second category, where Jesus is, in, in Latin, it's called tertium quid. He's a third thing. You have, you have God and you have man, and then you have something different in between the two, which is Jesus Christ. So he didn't believe that that Jesus was fully God. So that's what kind of Arian. So if you look at the modern day Jehovah Witness, that's that's close to Arianism. So and let me let me kind of finish the rest of that story that I was on before. Uh, tongue speech shows up in history certain places, um, and, and again, uh, I mean there are lots of places that you can see it. It's not mainline, so it doesn't have you know much defense. Uh, you'll find anti-Trinitarians show up throughout church history, but oftentimes anti-Trinitarians are devaluing the Son. But I, there are cases where, uh, throughout history, where people would hold a, uh, a view of the Godhead that would be compatible with what you and I would believe about the Godhead. Um, and then, you know, and really, what happens to to get to the tail end of your question, what really happens in the late 1800s, um, and, and I've just seen a story about this recently in the Christianity Today, what happens in the late 1800s is that while people are confessionally Trinitarian, they're practically oneness in the sense that they're, they're worshiping Jesus. So if you listen to people's music, and this is the story that I just saw in Christianity Today, um, even the, this popular Christian music today is... is Sung, Jesus is sung about um, the spirit rarely is mentioned and even the father is not mentioned much so you have this practical oneness that shows up in the late 1800s that really I think forms a seedbed for an awareness that maybe we got this trinity wrong um, so um, without going into great detail do you understand what I'm where I'm going with this, you, you know. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and, and to any of our listeners that may hear a lot of weird background noise, again, I'm recording at my house, and and my nephew just decided he wanted to start cooking whenever I was like, dude, stop, I'm recording right now. And so if anybody heard any background, it wasn't me getting a snack while he was talking. I, 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 was, I was tuned in. Um, but, but, but to that question, uh, since you've answered a lot about the, the history, uh, the early history and, and up to the 1800s, to the charge about 1913, where does that charge come from? And what was our history from around that time frame of why that uh, suddenly we pop up in, in, the, in the form we are now around that time period? And who were some of the key players? And, and again, to the, the question about how did they view uh, the doctrine did, did what was there a uniform belief, and if there wasn't, where were the big disagreements at? Okay, well, uh, it's my opinion that the best lens to to look at the rise of Pentecostalism, both Trinitarian and one Pentecostalism, to look at is that a restorationist movement. By that I mean you're trying to restore the church to it to its apostolic roots, free from the accretions of history. So that's what's driving Pentecostalism. What let's Go back to Pentecost. You can see that uh, in the earliest uh, Zusa Street papers, the September 1906 paper, the late article on the front page is about back to Pentecost. So there was the sense that you're going back to the Apostolic Church. In fact, 
before we were called Pentecostals, we were called people of the apostolic faith. That's what Parham called his movement, the apostolic faith movement. That's what Seymour, uh, the, the mission, Azusa Street mission was called the, Ap- the Pacific Apostolic Faith Mission. So they didn't self-identify as Pentecostals, they self-identified as apostolic faith people. So you can see that restorationist impulse. I want to go back to the book of Acts, to the apostolic church. Why would that be important? Why does that matter? Because they felt like the the historic Christianity had drifted away from the apostolic faith. So, you know, let's talk about, you know, speaking in tongues. It just is, it doesn't, it's not like there wasn't anybody speaking in tongues before to speak it, but it was such a, it was such a uh, small, small, small. When I talk small, I mean almost unsealable uh, part of the, the Christian church that were speaking in tongues. You know, you have a breakout in the 1830s. Uh, Edward Irving and the Catholic Apostolic Church, um, and, and there's there's some places you could find it. But if you look at the Book of Acts. People are speaking in tongues. So you look at that, and then you look at the contemporary church of, of, of 1900, and you say, you know, why why is it that they're speaking in tongues in the book of Acts, and we're not speaking in tongues today? So, you know, you get questions like that. Are, are we like the apostolic church or not like the apostolic church? So, I mean, that's one of the, one of the, so there's a, there's a book out there by, um, Yes. And I just lost the, the name of that book. Um, Theological Roots of, of Pentecostalism. Forward down, I'll, I'll pull his name up. But he's, he would say there are, there are four theological roots. And all of them focused on Jesus. Interesting enough. It, and that was the, that's the focus of the worship. Jesus, or Christ, is Savior. He is a sanctifier. This kind of shows up in the old holiness movement. Sanctifier slash spirit baptizer. He is healer, and, and he is soon coming king. Um, so those four theological, I think, roots come together to, to form the Pentecost movement. And then, so Parham and Seymour and the earliest Pentecostals believed in three verses of grace. You are saved. You're converted. Uh, you were. They, then you need to be sanctified, and sanctification was the second distinct fruit of grace. Or in, in its most uh, radical iteration, sin was removed, root and branch. Uh, and this comes really out of John Wesley and Methodist Church and what in the 1800s is called the Holiness Movement. So you, but it, and it's experiential. You would know when you're sanctified whatever that meant. And then after you're sanctified, you can be spirit baptized. So you're saved, sanctified, spirit baptized. That would have been the, that would have been the theology of Azusa Street. And it really is in, in 1909, 1910, that there's a guy in Chicago named William Durham who preached a message called The Finished Work of Calvary, in which he challenges that second distinct work of grace and says essentially that sanctification believes, uh, begins in a believer once they're saved. So they kind of two works of grace: you're saved, and you're, you're saved, and you're spirit filled, and that would be what the assemblies of God. Um, and so, if, if you think about 
contemporary Pentecostal churches. Church God Cleveland, Tennessee is three works of grave, saved, sanctified, spirit-filled. Kojic, Church God Christ, saved, sanctified, spirit-filled. Some was a God who's saved and spirit-baptized. Um, and then oneness believers follow, I, I, I would argue that the restoration impulse to a logical end, which is that there aren't three distinct works of grace or two distinct works of grace. You're, you're born again of water and spirit. Um, and the catalyzing um, idea is, you know, when they're looking at the book of Acts, one of the things they discover is in the book of Acts, everybody that's baptized is baptized in Jesus' name. So why aren't we baptizing in Jesus' name? And so when they say 1913, there was a camp meeting at Aurora Seiko and there was a baptismal service, and the, the person speaking at that baptismal service was Ari McAllister, and he he was preaching really against what uh, a, a doctrine called trine, trine immersion. People were baptizing three times, once for the Father, once for the Son, and once for the Spirit. And almost in a throwaway line, McAllister says, that's not how they baptize in, in the book of Acts. In fact, in the book of Acts, they baptize in Jesus' name. And that is why we often talk about 1913 as the beginning of the uh, the one's movements, because <clears throat> that idea kind of first surfaces. Again, people were baptizing in Jesus' name before that. In fact, Goss was baptized by Parham in 1903 in Spring River in Galena, Kansas, in Jesus' name. Uh, and, and, you know, to, to further that idea, why is that different? What happens in the in the oneness movement is people then begin to insist that you're rebaptized. So you know, not only are new believers baptized in Jesus' name, but if you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you need to be rebaptized in Jesus' name. And then in thinking about that, so, so the idea of the oneness of God, baptism in Jesus' name, and really this water and spirit, John three five, kind of all grow together. At, at the same time, it kind of explode on the scene. 1913, 1914, um, Frank Ewart and um, Glenn Cook rebaptize each other in, in California and begin to spread. And that becomes the new issue. The old issue was finished work at Calvary. The new issue is this baptism in Jesus' name. And in 1916, the ones people kind of get kicked out of the symbols of God. So, in some ways, you could say 1913 is the beginning. In some ways, you could say 1914 when they rebaptize each other. Or you could say 1916 when they were pushed to other summits of God. And I think the key person in all that, uh, Ewer is, is key, but C.T. Haywood, it seems to be the person who's, who's doing the most uh, innovative thinking about uh, Jesus' name, baptism, once to God. So early on, even Goss would say, he would have he would have believed in in the in new birth of water and spirit, but somewhere along the line, uh, God begins to believe that you're saved when you believe and that you should be baptized in Jesus' name and you, and you uh, should receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, speaking with other tongues. Now, what I think people misunderstand today is there's there's a Latin phrase called lex credendi, lex orandi means the way I pray is, is the way I believe. Um, and people use that to say, if you really want to know what people believe, watch how they practice. 
And so while Goss may have held this idea that you're saved when you believe, he was Pentecostal. He, he, he was going to baptize people in Jesus' name, and he was going to insist they receive the baptism of the Spirit. Uh, after, if, he, if he didn't believe that, he wouldn't have been Pentecostal. So if you looked at what was happening in a church that perhaps Goss led over against one that, you know, W.T. Witherspoon comes to mind as a, as a strong proponent of, of John 3.5, you wouldn't see any difference in what actually happened in service. People were, people were repenting. They were being baptized and received the gifts of the Spirit. They weren't looking for a, a If you ask them what they meant, you know, Goss would look at Acts 2.38 and, and say, repent uh, and be baptized, every one of you, because of the remission of sins instead of for the remission of sins. They argued over that word for or because, which really means for. So that's why there could be a merger in 1945 between the PCI and the PDMJC is because practically they were doing the same things. They understood what they were doing in different terms, but they were the same thing was happening in a PCI church that was happening in a PAFJC church. And I think that's recognized when you think about what is the fundamental doctrine of the Pentecostal Church that both sides agree on. They they knew what they were doing, um, and there was a you know there was a eschatological belief out there uh, early on in, in in the oneness movement that the, they made a distinction about being saved and being in the bride, and of course they all wanted to be in the bride and to be in the bride had to be born of water and spirit. Nobody was interested in just being saved. They were interested in being in the bride, but that's a that's a different subject that uh, we probably don't want to get into. So, uh, I'm sure Brian, Brian loves that. <laughs> oh, I, I do. Hey, here's here's a real deep one for you. If you had to pick on the 20th century uh, fathers of of UPC of Oneness Pentecostalism, if you had to make a Mount Rushmore, which four would you pick? Okay, let me get get this question straight again. A Mount Rushmore of what, Brian? Of the of the believers in the twentieth century that helped found us to who, where we are, or you can even, if you want to, you know, throw even a modern person in there for the generations to come. Let's say, if like in three hundred years, they build a Mount Rushmore. Uh, which four individuals do you think need to be on it? Well, I think GPA. If they, if they don't tear it down because they're woke. Yeah. Uh, I think GT Haywood. I think Frank Ewart. Um, and probably Andrew Urshan. Uh, and, and if I had to choose four, uh, the fourth person I would choose is David Bernard. I mean, there's just no question whether Bernard has advanced our scholarship. Um, and, and there's no for young people growing up in the church today. I mean, part of that whole discussion we just had about BCI and PAJC and different beliefs that's that has that has disappeared. We're firmly uh, John three five, water and spirit, unquestionably. That's our position. And I think a couple things attributed to that. One is that. You know, obviously, I'm in the publishing ministry right now, so I think printed word is incredibly important. I think 
establishing our own Sunday school curriculum helped solidify that. And I do think that books by Brother Bernard in the, in the 80s and the ones of God in the new birth, you know, Practical Holiness, those are, are key books in the ongoing development of the ones Pentecostal movement. So how do you think, um, how, what do you think that, that's the, we've, we've talked a lot about our past. What do you think is the new ground that you are excited that we're either breaking into or what do you think is the potential of something to, to, to be touched? Like to me, um, as an example, while you think on that is, is a focus on, giving attention to mental health to me is is kind of new ground for us and i'm seeing people begin to talk about it i'm excited about that i'm excited to see um what all happens with that what all becomes of that because i think that it's it's going to be transformative in the lives of people but but i'd like to ask you what do you think is something that you're excited about that we're we're moving into as a movement that's either new charted territory or is something that you think that we, at some point, we're going to dive into and it's going to be transformative? I, I, and for me, uh, if I could speak on that, Brian, is I, I'm thrilled that um, people like Rima Duncan is hitting segregation and racism in the United Pentecostal Church right on the head. We're not waiting for it to come to us. We're hitting it before it becomes an issue in our church and churches, and uh, that's something that I love about our movement is uh, Brother Bernard is very spoken on the issues that can be become uh, a negative light in our movement, and we don't really hide from that. And that's something that, for me, Brian's mental health mind is minority and racial issues and stuff like that. Uh, but I, I'm interested to hear what you have to say, Brother. Well, my, I think that what you just mentioned is, is really, I'm excited about it. Let me, let me kind of ground this a little bit. I mentioned the restoration impulse, and we often think of the restoration impulse in terms of restoration of doctrine, and you heard me kind of go through that. Uh, the, you know, what, what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he, he was rooted in Joel 2, 28, spirit poured out on all flesh. And then your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream, dream, gentlemen shall see visions. That whole notion of spirit poured out on all flesh is the is the rooting of this whole uh, interracial, multicultural, uh, and that was part parcel of early Pentecostalism. That's that's what one of the things that made Zuzza such a, a significant revival is this. This, the interracial, multi-ethnic nature of the Azusa Street revival, and one of Pentecostals held on to that longer than than Trinitarian Pentecostals. Uh, sadly, but they didn't hold on to it as long as we didn't hold on as long as we should. Uh, but um, we've regained. The, we're making enormous strides in that area, uh, not only on race and, and ethnicity. I think in in, in women in ministry uh, that's a kind of a function of early Pentecostalism empowering women uh, to preach and minister it happens at Azusa Street and it continues to happen in, uh, in the early Pentecostal movement 
you know, I'm, I'm working on something right now, a chapter actually in a book that I think will be published uh, by, by Penn State University Press on this whole um, notion of race, gender, and ethnicity and, and the way that the United, United Pentecostal Church is um, recapturing the ethos of the early Pentecostal movement and making strides forward. And when you look at someone just brought to my office today a picture of the 1969 General Conference. It's kind of a panoramic picture. And it's, it's a sea of white faces there. I picked up probably in that picture um, less than 10 African Americans. Everybody else is white. And if you took a, a picture of General Conference or Youth Congress more specifically, you would find a much different racial mix up, uh, ethnic mix up. That's exciting. I think we're, and I really think we're breaking ground. I think early Pentecostals had a prophetic voice that they lost. Uh, but I think we're, we're recapturing that prophetic voice. I, I don't think it will be easy, and I, uh, but I think it's wor- uh, work worth doing. And yeah, I'm excited about uh, that uh, progress that we're making. Uh, Absolutely. There's there's a question that. Uh, an outsider of the UPC uh, sent Brian and myself uh, about whenever we were having an episode about segregation. Um, and I'll ask you this, uh, and if you're uncomfortable answering it, we'll, we'll, we'll be completely fine with cutting it out. But do you think the United Pentecostal Church International will ever have a minority leader uh, such as a general superintendent? No, we We've not. Do you think we no, will? No, no, no. I mean, do you think we will ever have one? Uh, yes, most certainly. Most certainly. Uh, and I think that, and, and yeah, and, and if, you, know, I, you know, I gather from what you said that that both of you are situated in the Midwest or the Mid-South. Uh, right. But if you, if you visit our churches on the East or West Coast, you, you're going to see multiracial, multiethnic congregations as, as, as a rule of the day. It's, and, and that ultimately will bubble up into leadership, and, and that's beginning to happen. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, that's not a stretch for me, and hopefully for my lifetime. That is, that is so, such a great way uh, to, to move forward in progress. Uh, but, uh, how do you think segregation affected the UPC? Um, and obviously we are uh, recovering now from, uh, like you said, the picture that you, you saw. Um, how do you see or what do you see the next steps and the next processes being to where, uh, as our pastor at our local assembly says, where the church should look like your city? What, what, what steps, in your opinion, do you think we need to take for that? Well, um let me, let me back up just a little bit and the, the first part of your question. I, I, I teach at UGST as well as do what I do here at, at headquarters. Um, and I teach the, in the area of historical theology. You know, I teach a class on modern Pentecostal movements and I teach the uh, story of Christianity. But I did teach a class. One time they offered a class called uh, Apostolic Leadership. and Really, I moderated the class. We brought in... Um, significant elder leaders like N.A. Urshan and Nona Freeman and Jesse Williams. One of the people we brought in was an African-American a B.W. Bishop, a Bishop Scott from 
Bishop Johnson from here in, in St. Louis. He was a founding member of the, the Urshan Board. And somebody asked a question. In, so I, I had it for about nine hours. They kind of lectured for nine hours, and then I would kind of lead a discussion. That's a long lecture, brother. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. It was a, well, yeah, it, it most certainly. But these are they're telling stories. Uh, but somebody asked the question, what did racism cost the church? And Bishop Johnson's answer was the full witness of Christ. And that, and that answer will stick mm. with me forever. Will stick with me forever. So uh, I, I think the, to answer the tail end of your question is how do we get, get there? Is we have to be intentional. We have to not set quotas, but we have to, we have to broaden your horizon. So when I'm looking for a member of a board that I uh, am responsible for appointing people to or, or nominating people to, I've got to look outside my comfort zone of the people I know best and say, is there a, is there a young African-American man? There's a woman. Is there, uh, who, who, you know, there's a, you know, a position that came open the conference. That hopefully this person will be ratified at the conference. I see no reason why they won't be ratified, but I reached out to a young African-American man and said, you know, would you sit on this board if, if, if the if you're approved by the general conference this year? Uh, so you, you you do that intentionally. You again, you're, you're not looking for quotas, but you're you're trying to expand who who you're considering when you consider. And, and then when people get in those you know positions of leadership, but I you know not, you know. I, I told you that I, you know, grew up in, in New Brunswick. I, my my folks were not preachers. Uh, my dad worked for the railroad. My mother was a homemaker. And just you know, she, she worked a job, but they were not. They were, like, church was the center of our lives, but I certainly don't have a pedigree as a Pentecostal preacher. And I would be uh, in the first to say that I I'm, I'm not going to set the house fire preaching. So, uh, but but I was able to. People believed in me and mentored me and gave me opportunity to serve and when you serve in one category you get to serve in another category and ultimately I'm you know able to be the editor-in-chief for the United Pentecostal Church partially because people made a place for me and so what we've got to do is make a place for intentionally make a place for people who you know I, I didn't get this job because my dad was somebody uh, or my pastor was somebody uh, but other people believed in me and we've got to believe in those minority communities and get them in places where they can grow into further leadership. So. What can I do and what could Brian do to um, execute that? How do we how do we build those relationships and tear down those walls of um, the past? Uh, for instance, um, I don't want to be judged by uh, like. Um, you know, everybody, right. The, the hot topic right now is, um, racism and, um, black lives matter movement is just, uh, it's running rampant. And how, how does one break down the uh, stereotype of, um, you know, judging one race as a blanket? How, how do we do better as that brother, um, for, to make our, next generation better than what it is today well i think uh, you know uh, I, I think we know the answer to that in the sense that we need to think about the fact that all of us are created by god that we're image bearers 
and that when we when we look down on another race, we're really looking down on, on the handiwork of God. It's not a, the person who's most offended by our actions are not just the people involved, but the God who created us and it would, in His, you know, in His providence, to use a good Calvinist word, in His providence, He chose to make people of different races, and He does. There's no indication anywhere in Scripture that one race is preferable to another race. So we, and and, and I think even you know, sometimes we we talk about they're, they're you know creating a colorblind society, but. You know, the challenge with creating a colorblind society is that's not how God created society. He created society with diversity. So when we embrace diversity, we're embracing God's vision. Uh, and, and I think when we think of those are, are, uh, in, in the context of this is God's creation as opposed to these people seem to characterize, have these certain characteristics or what, however we begin to devalue people. Who we're ultimately devaluing, devaluing is God and His wisdom and how He made the world. I think that's the message that's got to, got to come through. That this is, you know, we're not being gracious when we do this. No, this is who God made us. And uh, when we that's, that, we are, that's yeah. something that uh, I think a whole generation could work on. Yeah, when you bring. When you bring, from my perspective, and, and I'm going to be very brief since we're not the star of this show today, but uh, when, it's a very delicate subject. And it's one of those subjects where you're looking at age-old concepts people have held on to and, and touchy subjects like this that people get emotionally invested in, and, and rightfully so. Um, you're never going to make everyone happy. Because whenever you're intentional, there's always going to be that same, there's always going to be a criticism and saying that you're moving too far to this and why are you doing this and why are you picking somebody and why are you being intentional this way and why am I not the most uh, qualified, I'm the most qualified, but you're doing this for the sake of diversity. I mean, there, there's always going to be somebody, but, but the fact is, is that there has to be a healing and, and people have to make room for that and to understand that that we are trying to do better and and it's a it's a it's a wild thing it takes a lot of wisdom because you can accidentally tether yourself to to bad organizations in this kind of in this kind of time period like there's there, there's so many phrases out there that have so much semantic overload in them and, and it means so much different things to other people like tony made reference of of, of blm how it has so much semantic force behind it and that it means so many different things, so many people, because like to me, whenever I hear that phrase, I hear an unarguable phrase that black lives matter, but then there's an entire neo-Marxist organization that adopts that name. And, and so it's a, it's one of those things that you can accidentally tether yourself very well meaning and, and to attach yourself to something that, that really is, is not trying to bring healing, but we have to be intentional that we are agents of change and that we are bringing about healing. And maybe I'm off base. Maybe you guys can correct me. But but I think these are these are very delicate times. And, and I'm thankful for the strides that we're we're moving towards the the, the development. And, and it seems to me, what I'm gathering from this conversation with one of the charges that's made is that the UPC is systematically racist because of X Y Z. Seems to me in this conversation that that this conversation we've had so far pretty well is a refutation of that 
that belief and that there is a systematic move towards bringing more diversity in. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. It, and it's not a straight line. It's up and down. But it, it, thankfully, uh, we have an incredible leader, Brother Bernard, who, um, who, who insists and who, who, who pushes and is taking in, is acting like a true leader. And I'm thankful for his leadership. Um, I think he's doing a great job. And, and and listening to voices, I think we listen to other 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 people and hear what they have to say. I just finished a book called Reading While Black. That powerful book on very helpful in uh, how uh, at least Southern African Americans look at scripture and emphasis that are different than, than a white person would have. Um, you know, for for according to, to this book and not, not just according to this book but you know more broadly this how how the uh, exodus narratives play such an incredible role uh, in african-american church life because because they're exiting slavery but that's an experience that i have nothing that i know nothing about other than intellectually well oh go ahead sorry about that so you know trying to find the, those resources and, and having conversations with people um, are, are, the, are the ways that we can make those strides. Bro, out of the, uh, uh, all the topics that we've talked about tonight, if some of our listeners are interested on the theology things that you've written, where can they find stuff like that at? Uh, PentecostalPublishing.com You know, if you, you know, I, I did my my dissertation was on Howard Goss, and I really looked at him. Uh, there, there was a book out there by Grant Wacker uh, called Heaven Below, Early Pentecostals in American Culture, and the thesis of his, of his book was that Pentecostals have balanced what he called the pragmatic and the primitive impulse. And, and, and of that, they, they use that as a productive tension. And I really attempted to take Goss's life and, and examine it through Wacker's thesis to, and, and basically say that, I was trying to argue obviously that ultimately you'd end up with oneness if you follow the tra- trajectory in Pentecostalism, but the Goss was both a primitive, primitivist in the sense he was trying to go back to the book of Acts and a pragmatist as he spent his energy organizing the forming organizations. So that book's available, uh, the handbook series is available. You know, you can get it on Amazon, um, Brian, didn't I'm you have a question? Friend. Didn't you have a question about Howard Goss and the UPC you wanted to ask? I think we pretty well covered it. But the question I had is, what do you think the UPC would look like if Howard Goss was superintendent today? I don't know. That's I mean, you know, that's a that's, that's I, I, I I I don't really I really can't answer the question. Um, <clears throat> When was he superintendent? What was the time frame? Nineteen forty-five through fifty-one. Yeah, so we're looking at it, seventy years ago worth of worth of yeah, history yeah. To, to transport it's like, somebody. I'm wondering into the if day. you'd have an iPhone or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. You know, the, he's followed by A.T. Morgan, who, interestingly enough, was from the from the PCI as well. He'd been a member of PCI, uh, but I. Yeah, 
I, I, it would be speculation, and I don't, I don't really know. Um, we, we've been blessed with incredible leaders over the years that um, brought us miles down the road. We're significantly uh, more diverse. So what I'm hearing you say is each man was called for his specific time period. Yes, yes. Goss was was had roots all the way back to the beginning. He, you know, he came into Parham's work in 1903, and part of his legacy was that belt that he had uh, to navigate that whole time period. So, really, he was an elderly man when he became general superintendent. I'm actually looking at his picture right now because I have your book uh, on a Pentecostal life from him. And uh, yeah. he had a nice three-piece suit on. Yeah, he did. Uh, he had a little bit of style. But, you know, he, he, he uh, traveled on a train, rarely drove a car. Most, most of his That's travels. That's very cool. Very cool. Well, Brian, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I know you have more than anybody else. I mean, this is right up your alley, bro. <laughs> yeah. And there, there's a lot of stuff that... that uh, that I feel like we've missed, but I think we have a we, we we've got a we, we've got enough out there that people should be interested in get get these books. Actually, like again, I have both of them uh, that that you mentioned that the, the handbook series. I have the Book of Acts here with me. I have uh, the Pentecostal Life with me, and uh, I, I've really enjoyed it. I thank you so much for taking time to to speak with us today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. The Lord bless you. Yeah, you too. You've been listening to, as he just hung up. Crucial conversation, man. There, there it is. And so, so, Tony, what do you think? How, 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 what are man, you thinking? There was, there was so much knowledge dropped there. I just hope that our listeners take time to soak it in. Yeah, there, there really uh, so was a lot. I mean, um, what what I enjoyed most about this conversation was here's the past, here's the present. Mm-hmm. What do we got to do to make it for our future? You know, it's really interesting. I didn't really notice how it tethered like that, where we did focus a lot on the past. And, and it, it, it was sort of intentional, I guess. But but I see what you're saying, where um, especially with that question about what's the new ground. And, and it really is exciting. 100%, man. I'm just, I'm thrilled that we were able to do that conversation tonight. Yeah. I'm actually glad you brought that up. Um, I didn't even think about that beforehand. So, yeah, man. Well, this is gonna be a great episode. I'm glad we can do it together. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate you. So, I'll. Um, Sorry, I'll, I couldn't be there with you tonight, man. I've enjoyed it a whole lot better than normal. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, I hope our listeners are still listed where they heard that. So, <laughs> hey, I hope you hear this. I don't. Well, he just hung up on me as we have such a great working relationship. The, the fact is, is that um, one of the takeaways in this is that, as Tony alluded to, is the past charts our destination for our future. Um, it's important to know the past. It's important to know, important to know where you came from. And, and this conversation, of course, to our listeners, this is rested very heavily upon uh, oneness Pentecostalism. And and I hope that to all our friends that are listening that are part of other church denominations, 
I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I hope it sparks your interest in in learning more about oneness Pentecostalism, to learning more about the apostolic faith. And 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 I know we've got several listeners out there that that wouldn't necessarily identify today um, as a oneness Pentecostal. And, and I just want to invite you to join us. That that we're on a journey uh, going to heaven. And, and we'd love to see you come alongside us in, in the pursuit of evangelizing our world and making a difference in our communities, um, making a positive change, and, and not only making a positive change in our world, but the feeling of a positive change that happens in you when you're first baptized with the Spirit. Whenever you have, as we talked about, when you've spoken in tongues, the feeling that you get from this biblical experience, because that experience is for you. It's an experience for whosoever will. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter number 16, he said that they that believeth, they will be, uh, they will speak in new tongues. It's in Mark 16 and 17. And so it's something not just for a select few, but it's for believers. If you are a believer, it's an experience you can have. You can experience it. And so I invite you to, on our journey, enjoy the baptism of the Holy Spirit with us. And, and like I said, if you're more interested in learning more about what this oneness doctrine is and how it's different than the classical Trinitarianism, there's several resources out there that you can get from on Amazon. You can get it downloaded on Kindle. You can, uh, you can get it just about anywhere. For Pentecostal Publishing House, uh, books like by David Bernard, Phenomenal, uh, The Oneness View of Jesus Christ, The Oneness of God, uh, David Norris's I Am, uh, the Apostolic Handbook series has information about it in it. That's a eight-volume set. And, and I encourage you as a listener to get a hold of some of those materials and keep listening to The Crucial Conversation because every now and then we talk about it here as well. We love you guys. We appreciate all of you. And thank you for being a part of The Crucial Conversation and listening to The Crucial Conversation because we've just had a Crucial Conversation. <laughs>